I'm Shaharazani, and I'm pleased to join once more David Harris right here on JBS's Defending Israel. It's been two months since the massacre in Israel, and the IDF continues to operate against Hamas in Gaza and to pay a heavy toll in the lives of IDF warriors every day. The Northern Front is also abuzz, with Hezbollah increasing its attacks against Israel, and the Red Sea has become a no-go zone for ships due to attacks by the Iranian proxy, the Houthis in Yemen. So much is happening all around us, and the pace continues to increase. No one better to discuss these developments with than our very own David Harris. David, as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure is mine. You know, um, I always feel like we don't have enough time to touch on the important issues. So I want to start with something I actually wanted to raise the last time we met. And this is the ongoing discussion about the two-state solution. Um, Palestinian sovereignty. What should be the end game in Gaza? So let me first ask you, when you hear now, post-October 7th, that term of a two-state solution, what comes to your mind? Uh, bad timing. I, I always want to believe, Shahar, that when statesmen, whether in the United States or Europe or elsewhere, say these things, they, they know things that I don't know. They have a, a bigger, broader vision. They have much better intelligence. So they say them with um, sort of knowledge of forethought. But I, I try and circle around this. I, I don't see it. Uh, I don't begin to see it. Uh, number one. Um, 75% of the Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza, according to Palestinian polls, have endorsed what happened on October the 7th. And other numbers from those polls are equally frightening. Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, and our putative partner for that two-state process, has been chasing after Hamas, trying to get on the Hamas train, uh, in order to get some of the benefit politically. So if, if, if diplomacy is about ripeness, you know, it, is it ripe? The answer is not even close, not even close. So I don't see it on the Palestinian side, and I certainly don't see it on the Israeli side. I mean, who in Israel today, other than some extreme voices, is going to say, you know, two months after October 7th, notwithstanding everything that happened, or maybe because of everything that happened, we have to accelerate the search for a two-state solution. I don't think they're going to get very far in Israel either. And it's logical why. Right, but you know, they say maybe, maybe that's the case here of old habits die hard. You know, for diplomats to continue uttering the same expression we've been so used to hearing for the past 30 years. Palestinian sovereignty, Palestinian state, but thinking long term, do you see in the long run any um, potential for Palestinian sovereignty? And if so, how? What needs to happen for Palestinians to gain some sort of sovereignty in the way that they're hoping to achieve? Is there any way for them to do so? Look, I, I, I'm, I'm old enough to say never say never. Right. Uh, so even if I don't see it now, because the stars are not aligned, not even close. It's a fair question to ask, what's the long-term perspective? Right. It's a necessary question to ask, I would say, Shahar. And ironically, I think if people could dial back to 
June 1st, 1967. And, and if they were asked, what if we could somehow bring Egypt back into Gaza right. and Jordan back into the West Bank, would you sign up for that? My guess is right. an awful lot of Israelis and others would say, you know, there's no perfect solution, but I don't see a better solution than that. Right. But that was pre-Six-Day War. And at the time, it was a war of necessity for Israel. Right. But the outcome, of course, was that Israel uh, uh, took Gaza and took the West Bank. Uh, Egypt says it has no interest whatsoever in going back into Gaza. They're actually right now building additional, additional walls. Additional walls, and right, exactly. Right. They, don't want, they don't want the displaced people in Gaza even coming into Egypt temporarily. Right. Right. Uh, and Jordan shows no interest in reclaiming the West Bank and inheriting a large Palestinian population that will one day turn its anger against the Hashemite minority. Right, and we all remember that history. Right. Okay, so those are not going to happen. There's not going to be a two-state solution anytime soon, I believe, right. for the reasons we discussed. So what's left? Uh, some experiments in limited autonomy but greater participation of the Arab countries in the circle of peace. Right. This can't be done with the Palestinians alone, certainly not with this Palestinian leadership. Couldn't agree more. So we, we end up kind of invoking um, aspirational hopes, but that's all they are, hopes. That's all they are. What do we say, the next generation of Palestinian leaders? But we say that kind of abstractly, without someone specific in mind that can actually become the Thomas Jefferson of the Palestinian people, but recognizing that the current crop are not going to do it for us. No, but even at some point, you want to hope that they'll be able to breed some sort of leadership out of, you know, their own ranks that will take, that will take them through the necessary steps in order to achieve any kind of goal, just like the Jewish people has had to. Well, that's the point. So, so again, we invoke these kinds of, 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 of wishes and dreams and yeah. hopes. Are they delusional? You know, we're looking for the next David Ben-Gurion right. of the Palestinian people. Or we're looking for the Anwar Sadat. Right. Or we're looking for the late King Hussein. We're looking for them. We invoke their names, but without any basis in reality. Right. The same way that a lot of the, 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 the cheerleaders uh, for the two-state solution inevitably say it will be a demilitarized state right. and a democratic state. Right. Well, easier said than done, Shahar. Right. One more thing. Will it be a unified Palestinian state? Uh, is Gaza magically going to unite with the West Bank and remain united under one leadership? I mean, all of these things are steps removed. So the, the statesmen, the diplomats talk about them because they don't want to extinguish hope. Right. And as you said, because in a way they're on automatic sort of pilot. Um, but again, uh, even in, in disabusing us of these prospects, we have to ask, is it, is it permanent conflict? We certainly hope not. Right. Um, uh, is it permanent occupation? Uh, we hope not. But the solutions have to be rooted in some form of reality, Shachar. Correct. Correct. And that's not always the case these days. You know what irks me, David? Sometimes when I look at these discussions... I think discussions, a lot of things irk a lot, A lot of things, a <laughs> lot of things. But one of the things about this discussion is we seem to be searching for their David Ben-Gurion. And you have the donor states, and you have the United Nations, and you have the U.S., and you have Israel, and the pressure on Israel. 
Where are the Palestinians in all of this? Shouldn't they be looking for their David Ben-Gurion? Shouldn't they grow up? Shouldn't we stop patronizing them and thinking that it's Israel, it's in Israel's hands to bring about a solution, whereas the Palestinians must be able to meet the moment? And you know, we talk about the next generation. You saw what they found in Gaza. Mein Kampf in Arabic, highlighted taught in a classroom. What a depressing thought for the future of the Palestinian people. Because I think to myself, from my perspective, we've had 30 years since the Oslo Accords. Generations of Palestinians were born after that moment of the signing of the Declaration of Principles. And look where we are today. So, like you say, David, so correctly, a dose of reality is in dire need out there. I would add, Shahar, that at least in my understanding of history, I don't know another example of a country, Israel, victorious in war, that is begging and suing for peace. Right, very true. It, 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 it's such a strange irony. Right. I mean, think after World War II, think after, um, after other conclusive wars. So here is Israel victorious in wars imposed upon itself. And yet, we're the ones trying to figure out how to solve the sovereignty and self-determination problem for the Palestinians. But then, why is it a surprise, given the fact that since 1937, with the British Peel Commission, and 1947, with UNSCOP and the UN General Assembly Partition Plan, and go forward, every single proposal to divide the land and create a two-state solution, Shahar, Every single one was turned down. Right. It was turned down by the Palestinians. So can I want a, a, a compromised state for them more than they wanted for themselves? Absolutely. And, 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 and others, including some in the Jewish community, keep sort of as a mantra. They keep right. invoking this exactly and somehow suggesting that if you raise questions, you're anti-peace. Right. Rubbish. I want a peace that endures. I don't want the mirage of a peace. Right. I don't want the false peace. You want peace that's rooted in reality. I want a peace like the peace with Egypt. Right. The peace with Jordan. Right. The peace with Egypt has held through thick and thin for 44 years right. and counting. The peace with Jordan has, has held for 29 years through thick and thin and counting. And I think all of us who witnessed the normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco especially, felt this was real, this was authentic, this would last. So we are, I I am a Rodef Shalom. Like many, I am a seeker of peace. But I can't want it more by simply virtue signaling, you know, with with these endless verbal references. I'm for a two-state solution. You're not because you're asking questions about it, Shahar. Right. So I'm therefore more virtuous than you are. Right. And, no. the, and the price paid on the ground as a result of these mirages, and these prices are not paid in the U.S. or, or in Europe. It's paid right there on the border <coughs> between southern Israel and Gaza. If Mahmoud Abbas had used the moment of October the 7th, rather than to jump onto the Hamas train to say, no matter what the risks to my life may be, this is a defining moment. I reject the Hamas approach. I believe in peace. Uh, My terms will be tough, but I believe in peace. Had that been the case, I think it would have raised a lot of interest and curiosity in Israel. That would have been an act of courage. You know, um, 
I'm but he thinking didn't. he didn't. He did Not only he, he doubled down and members of his, you know, Fatah right. ruling party doubled right. down on this and so, projected, okay. made it happen also in the West Bank, Jibril Rajoub said. Right. So that, you know, that was one moment, just as you had the moment in 2005. And again, I know people don't want to be bored with history. You know, tell me about today, David. Don't tell me about no, what no, happened. But these are important But instances. in 2005, yeah. it has to be said again and again. And again. Israel gave Gaza its first authentic chance for self-rule. Yes. Had it pursued a Singapore model, I will bet you that not only would Gaza today be a full-fledged state, but the momentum for a state in the West Bank would have been actively supported by more and more Israelis. But instead, they chose the path of Hamas, Israel's destruction rather than Gaza's construction, so these are, these are lost moments. Yeah. But as I said in an earlier show, unlike children in a playground, you don't get to do these things over. Right. You know, as children, we used to say, do over, do over, give me another chance. Right. You know, in life, this kind of geopolitics, you don't get second chances. You don't. You had 2005, you blew it. Big okay? time. You blew it. In 2023, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority had the chance to separate themselves and distinguish themselves from Hamas. And instead they embraced Hamas. What's Israel left with? Right. So I think Israel's uh, diplomatic goal, once this chapter is over, and there will, be a, there will be a day when it's over, at least temporarily, is to redouble its efforts with the United States for the seventh and the eighth and the ninth countries in the circle of peace, even as they try and find sort of ways of trying to calm down the situation economically, bottom up, Prime Minister Netanyahu used to say, but, but mindful of, of the change in reality. You can't live in a, in a, in a, in a, a self-delusional world and survive, especially in the Middle East. Again, it's been said before, Shahar, in the Middle East, you're either at the table for dinner or you're on the menu for dinner. And Israel has no intention of being on the menu. Very true. Well said. <clears throat> I, um, so I'm thinking to myself, a lot of people you know, feel the same and understand that, especially post-October 7th, our legs should be rooted in reality and understanding what's happening on the ground. One of the great omissions, in my view, has been looking the other way, even though we've seen quite clearly the incitement in the textbooks on TV screens within Palestinian society. And you mentioned Khalil Shekaki's polls, according to which over 70% of Palestinians in the West Bank and of course in Gaza support Hamas's atrocities. So there is a lot of work that Palestinian society has to do within itself. And so for so many years, we were used to saying that the big topics on the table are the refugees, quote unquote, Jerusalem. And now we're seeing that even though we did stated that the issue is incitement and education, we saw the real life results of that maleducation that Palestinians had received. I was just in Israel and I could see it with my own eyes, David. It was terrible to watch. I think that there is a reckoning that, that has to come, Shahar. I'm not sure how it's going to come, because not everyone has reached the conclusions that they should have reached. Right. But take, for example, UNRWA, uh, the UN specialized agency for Palestinian refugees. Yeah. Why do I go like this? 
because we're talking about fourth and even fifth generation, okay? I think technically even Bella and Gigi Hadid, living their life of luxury as fashionistas, are still technically refugees according to that definition of UNRWA. We've seen UNRWA complicity um, with personnel, with textbooks, with facilities. Uh, is this just going to go on and on? Yes. Are people going to avert their eyes? The funders of UNRWA, the European funders of right. UNRWA, right. the U.S. funders of UNRWA. What about all the European countries that are funding various um, NGOs in the Palestinian space, which have again been revealed to be fronts for extremism, radicalism, right. genocidal anti-Semitism? Are these countries simply on automatic pilot? They keep approving the next uh, grant, the next grant? I I think there has to be some accountability here. And Shahar, as with so many things in life, it has to begin with American leadership. Without American leadership, there are too many people who are simply going to look the other way, wait for the noise to kind of die down, and we cannot allow that to happen. So I think we have to be going to the UN um, and its principal donors. We have to be going to the key donor nations of all of this NGO space. Right. And we have to be bringing the evidence. Are you, Mr. Prime Minister or Madam Prime Minister of country A, B, or C, going to continue to fund? And we're going to show you what you're funding. What the IDF has found in Gaza, things like Mein Kampf, as you said in Arabic. This can't go on. It can't go on. And by the way, many of these countries are are not evil countries. I mean, the European countries are not evil countries. They're either lax or they they, they fooled themselves. Right. Um, They've averted their eyes, perhaps. Right. I, I think we have to, just as with American universities, it's time for us to stiffen our spine, roll up our sleeves, um, and show our own self-respect, and stop just these, these kind of blah, 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 you know, pleasant conversations yeah. about generalities. That's exactly it. Um, and this has been a theme in our previous conversation, Shahar. I think if the Jewish organizational world doesn't learn the tough lessons since October the 7th, then we're not being well served. <laughs> we're not being say, well served. To say the least, because you know the road to hell, they say, is it's paved. With good intentions. And I want to ask you about the road to the future, because you're mentioning U.S. leadership. And we are, of course, thankful for the U.S. support and for many opinion leaders around the world. And I love your, your list of you know, allies and those who are on the wrong side of history. Very important to remember always when you make your next travel plans and in general. But I want to ask you about the recent survey. Um, There is a great amount of support for the state of Israel and its war against the ultimate evil of Hamas. But there is also a concerning trend among 18 to 24 year olds, the younger Americans, who show a less favorable approach towards Israel. How concerned are you about this trend? And what do you think could or should be done? Or do you think they just grow out of it? Like I heard once, um, you know, Israeli leader once said, they, they grow up and then they grow up. How do you feel about this? Uh, I, I don't think the, let's not be too worried because they grow up, 
is, is a strategy. Right. You know, you, you, you don't plan for peace, you plan for war. And if, if you're wrong, it, it's not because you were unprepared. Uh, I think actually in a strange way we've had two wake-up calls in recent weeks, Shahar, that while I wish they hadn't happened, serve a purpose. The first, to come back to an earlier theme, was the three university presidents right. appearing before the U.S. Congress. Again, it's an embarrassment, it's a shame, it's a scandal, it's a shanda, but you know what? It was also an opportunity to expose the moral cowardice, the moral fog, the moral rot in American universities. And those weren't just any three universities. They were three of the finest universities in the world, not just the country. And if this is the mindset, when asked a question about calling for the genocide of the Jewish people and right. whether or not it contradicts the code of conduct. Wasn't that a yes-no question? But they Simple stuck to question. the legal advice yeah. of the firm they had paid, Wilmer Hale. But there was no, there was no humanity. There was no common sense. There was no emotion. Right. It was a legal answer to a question that wasn't legally based alone. Very true. And then we had this survey from the Harvard-Harris group that a majority of 18 to 24-year-olds in the United States actually believe that Israel should vanish, should disappear right. from the face of the earth. Right. They're not talking about political parties or right. leaders. Right. They're talking about the country. The very existence. Nine and a half million people. Right. The only Jewish majority nation on earth should disappear and instead be replaced by what? A Hamas-ruled uh, entity? Country? Is that ignorance? Is that malice? These are, these are alarm bells. These are four alarm bells. These are five alarm bells. This is the urgent wake-up call for our country. Is it too late to deal with it? It's late in the day. We can't say it's too late because to say it's too late means um, nothing can be changed. It's very late in the day but it requires all hands on deck. And here I don't just speak about viewers of JBS. I'm talking about America's political leaders, uh, its, its civic leaders, its intellectual, its thought leaders. Is, just, is that just risky for Israel, or is it also? Oh, it goes way beyond Israel. Why? Because a moral rot that cannot recognize the genocide of a people, in this case the Jewish people, uh, as something other than befitting a legal answer about whether words turn into to conduct and what's the context is a scary prospect. The closing of the American mind is what we're seeing. I'm, I'm borrowing the title of a famous book from years ago. What we're seeing is no longer the universities as we once knew them as the citadels of openness of, 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 of the pursuit of truth, of, 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 the, of, of the encounter of competing ideas. We're seeing a kind of ideological orthodoxy imposed on our uh, universities. You know very well, and I do too, that had the question been asked, not about Jews, but for example about African Americans, or the transgender population, or the larger LGBTQ population, I guarantee you, that irrespective of what the law firm might have proposed, the answer would have come from their gut. Exactly. Not just their 
their programmed brain, exactly. their gut, and they would have said, of course I would do something. Of course I would try. And by the way, they would be right. right. So the question is, why have they created in their own mind this hierarchy, and Jews don't even make it to the bottom rungs of the hierarchy of their university communities? So, and when young people are prepared to think, forget Israel for a moment, but are prepared to endorse a jihadist, a homophobic, misogynistic, tyrannical, corrupt organization, Shahar, this is not just me speaking, Bill Clinton, as President of the United States, listed Hamas as a foreign terrorist organization. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. This was not Donald Trump or George W. Bush. This was Bill Clinton's administration. And young people either don't know, or even worse, don't care to know, and are prepared to see that replace Israel? Yeah. Is this only about Israel? No. Something has gone very wrong in the education of our young people, in our school system, right. in, in what we do and do not teach, in how we teach. And the Bin Laden letters on TikTok. As yet another example. So this is, this, this is, a, this is a shrill wake-up call. You know, this is the hotel operator who's not going to let you sleep another minute because it's so urgent. Uh, Shahar, wake up. Wake up, wake up. The house is on fire. So, Get out while you can. So tell me, you know what? I'm listening to you. I hear you. You're telling me to wake up. You're telling the Jewish organizational world to wake up. You're telling the American leadership to wake up. What does that mean, David? What do you want them to do? What does waking up mean in trying to counter this most terrible threat against our very foundations of our society? Take note, first of all, that a majority of 18 to 24-year-olds, according to what is presumed to be a reliable poll, right. think this. Take note. Don't ignore it. Don't minimize it. And once you take note, spend some time with your smartest entourage and ask yourself, what explains this? Uh, what are the sources of this? How do we tackle this? Uh, and make sure. And the problem in America is everyone's looking for short-term solutions. Yeah, silver you know, bullet. I either want to learn to speak Chinese in 30 days right. or become a millionaire overnight, but I'm not willing to invest the time. Right, but so much of it comes from teachers who miseducate in the classroom for years and years and years. And I, you know, we've seen it with our own children and, and what they faced in schools. And this education translates long-term. It's not a, a silver okay. bullet of a month. So you, you, you put your finger on, on another part of the story. It's not just our elected officials of our leadership. It's ourselves. It's, it's us as parents and grandparents. Right. Are we going to ensure that we have a say? By the way, in what schools our children attend, in monitoring what they learn and don't learn, in speaking up, in organizing. Right. And I want to talk to you about this. You know, when the time comes and we have more time to talk about our families, what are you doing within your family? What are you hearing from your children? And let that be an example for all of us, all of our JBS viewers and the community at large of how we should carry ourselves against those risks that really, at the end of the day, the threat will come to our very door. This is no time for any of us to be sitting in the bleachers or sitting like couch potatoes or assuming that someone else will take care of it. Right. 
This is an all-hands-on-deck moment, and it's not just about the Jewish people, though it is, or about Israel, though it is. It's about the nature of our society, the nature of our civilization. It's under assault, and for me, this is no longer about Jews alone. This is about all people of goodwill, of whatever background, religion, race, creed, you name it, who have a stake in uh, the future of America, uh, and our world. In our world. We're interlinked, we're interwoven, we're interdependent, Shachar. We are. And, and you know, we always reach this point, David, where I can both be uh, complaining and thankful. I'll complain that we never have enough time because I always feel like by the time we reach the crux of a matter and get in, engaged in the discussion, it's already the end of this episode. But I'm thankful for JBS that we have the opportunity to do this more and to dig deeper into the foundations of our future because what you say now about taking action and rather than just complaining on the couch, there is no, important, no more important message that people need to hear today, and it's not just about Israel. The key word is now, and the key word is us. It's not tomorrow, it's today. And it's not them, it's us. It's us. And either we rise to the occasion, Shahar, or given what we've seen in the last two months, both in the Middle East, but here in the United States, if we don't rise to the occasion, we're going to pay a very heavy and long-lasting price. And as a father and a grandfather and a proud American and a steadfast Zionist and Jew, um, hineni. 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 Here I am, hinenu, here we, we are. are. Yeah. This is the moment this for each moment. of us, each of us, to say hineni, here I am. You know, Reporting I, for duty. Reporting for duty. No one says it better than David Harris. David, thank you so much again for yet another energizing, inspirational conversation that leaves so much for us to think about as we move forward. Because like David said, it may start with the Jews, but it does not end with the Jews. Thank you again. An absolute pleasure always. And to all of you, our viewers, I'd like to say, as always, these are trying times for us all as Israelis, as Jews, as an American society. And the only way we get through these days is doing it together. May we see better times soon. And Am Yisrael Chai. Thank you very much for watching and see you again very soon. <laughs>